James Lawrenson, Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. Last year, the Lowy poll said that more Australians thought of New Zealand as our best friend than any other country. Now, in a sense, that's not surprising. The countries are geographically close, similar in many ways, language, culture, institutions. But when it comes to our policies towards China, there are, of course, similarities, but there's also important differences. Both New Zealand and Australia are grappling with their evolving relationships with China. In both our countries, we have witnessed intensifying debate about Chinese government economic and political interference or influence, the extent to which we should be involved in China's Belt and Road Initiative, and the overall direction of our foreign policies between our long-standing alliances with the United States and our increasing economic reliance on China. How is New Zealand balancing these issues? How does the current New Zealand government formulate its China policy? Today I'm joined by Jason Young, Senior Lecturer in Political Science and International Relations and the Acting Director of the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre at the Victoria University of Wellington. Jason's research focuses on Chinese politico-economic and institutional reform, Chinese foreign policy, New Zealand-China relations and the Belt and Road Initiative. In short, there's no one better to talk about this topic than Jason Young. Welcome to the program, Jason. Uh, Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Jason, I thought I might start um, with a piece of research that the Australia-China Relations Institute actually commissioned a few years ago back in 2015. One of the things we like to do at ACRI is to compare and contrast how Australia runs its China policy with other countries, particularly those that are like-minded, such as New Zealand, the UK and Canada. Now, in this report back in 2015, the former New Zealand High Commissioner in Canberra, John Larkendale, wrote of the New Zealand-China relationship. He said, New Zealand has managed to build a comprehensive strategic partnership with China based on, and this is what he said, based on consistent, pragmatic and proactive policies. Well, you've got a new government over there. Would you still characterise the relationship in these terms? Well, I think um, a lot's changed uh, since 2015. Um, and that's always the case when we're, we're looking at China. Uh, today and New Zealand, as you rightly point out, also has a new government. But I would argue that this idea and the key, key, the three key words, the consistent, pragmatic, and proactive, that these things still hold. So New Zealand um, has been consistent in the expression of its values and its interests in its relationship with China. New Zealand is pragmatic, as all small countries need to be, um, and they're pragmatic in the sense of what they seek to do to achieve their interests, and New Zealand is, is, is proactive as well. And you can see that um, historically in terms of the EFTA, uh, but also in terms of um, WTO accession for China. Um, and then more recently with the new government um, uh, finding their feet uh, in terms of their China policy, but also have already established um, ministerial visits to China, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think that, that those three words still very much characterise how New Zealand sees the, the relationship with China. Jason, um, your Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, in a recent speech at the China Business Summit, um, described the New Zealand-China relationship as being, and I quote, in great shape. Politically, we're in close touch. Economically, we are doing great things together. And our people-to-people links are growing day by day. Um, And I note the Chinese Foreign Ministry concurred as well. 
Um, things seem to be in pretty good shape. But is there more to it than that? Do you agree with your Prime Minister's assessment of the current state of the New Zealand-China relationship? Well, I think, you know, here, and you mentioned in your, in your intro, there's um, an interest in sort of comparing New Zealand and Australia and, and looking for those areas of difference and those areas of similarities. And, and I would just simply argue that there's a lot of similarity uh, between New Zealand, the, the type of relationship we're seeking with China, but also the types of uh, changes which we're, we're, we're having to deal with. Um, but if we, if we go back to the, the Prime Minister's statement, um, I think that that's kind of the baseline of, of any type of strong, enduring, sustainable relationship with China. We need to have a uh, close political relationship, um, which is not to say we need to agree all the time, but we need to have those lines of communication. Uh, we need to focus on uh, the economic relationship, and we need to have uh, strong and enduring people-to-people -people links, um, which hold sort of the glue of the relationship. Mm. So overall, you know, I would have to concur. It's not talking about all of the other stuff that's going on in the relationship, but that very basic fundamental level, I think that, that things are in great shape. Right. Now, your foreign minister um, isn't shy with his words. Um, at the Lowy Institute in Sydney earlier this year, for example, um, Winston Peters criticised Australian Minister of, uh, for the Pacific, Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells, comment that China was building white elephants and roads to nowhere in the Pacific. Um, he also said of foreign actors in the Pacific, I've seen whole governments corrupted by offshore interventions, and that country wasn't China. Has New Zealand's approach to China's aid in the Pacific changed over time? Particularly, I understand there's been a new budget just released in New Zealand. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so the New Zealand uh, budget, which has just come out, um, one of the big announcements in that was a, a huge, a, a very large $750 million upgrade in the amount of aid that New Zealand will will, will, will have for, for the Pacific, and also, they call it the Pacific Reset, and also a change in tone moving away from being a, a donor country to being a partner in the Pacific. And I think there's a, a strong consistency, sort of waxes and wanes in terms of the government's commitment to the region, but there's a strong consistency in how New Zealand, like Australia, uh, wants to see Pacific Island countries flourish on their own terms and to be to be involved in that, in that development in the region um, because it's our neighbourhood. And so in, in terms of um, how we have viewed China's role in the region, um, I think there's a couple of things there. So the first thing is that, that New Zealand would see China's role in the region uh, very similar to how they see the role of other external actors uh, in the Pacific. So we consider ourselves you know, part of the neighbourhood and then there's a lot of other external actors. And all of those external actors would be held to the same, um, same standards that New Zealand holds itself to. Um, and of course New Zealand has uh, in historical terms also not always met those standards and so it's very somewhat of a sensitive issue. So, so there's a, a few areas of concern, both in terms of the, the scope and the scale and the speed of change in terms of China's role in the region, uh, but also in terms of uh, the types of projects which are going on, questions about governance, questions about quality, questions about indebtedness in the Pacific. And I think these things are, are constant, and I imagine they will uh, consider on, continue on for some time. Mm. Now, in that same speech by Winston Peters, I think the thing that attracted most attention in Australia, although from memory I think he made it just in the question and answer sessions after his speech, was in reference to um, New Zealand's positioning on the Belts and Road. And in particular, he, su he suggested that he thought um, perhaps the previous New Zealand government signed up too quickly 
to China's Belt and Road Initiative. So Jason, can you give us an update on where the current New Zealand government stands on the Belt and Road Initiative, given that backdrop? So um, in a recent speech in Auckland, um, the Prime Minister actually touched on the Belt and Road Initiative, um, or, or more specifically or what we like to call as in New Zealand is the Maritime Silk Road, so the, that side of the Belt and Road Initiative, because the, frankly the rest of it does, doesn't relate so much to New Zealand. Mm. Um, and so the previous government had signed up to a memorandum of arrangement. Um, and if you read, go through that memorandum of arrangement, and I believe it was about the same time that uh, March 2017 when Premier Li Keqiang also visited Australia and then came to New Zealand, and, and you know, I think it was on the table for both countries to sign up to that. Um, and so if you go through that memorandum of, of arrangement and look at the, the, the areas that it talks about, it's, it's a very open document. Um, it's really just a... Um, an agreement that New Zealand will consider what areas it could potentially cooperate with China on. Um, and if, also, if you look at what it doesn't talk about, is that it's not really focused on those classic parts of the Belt and Road Initiative um, that are targeted at uh, developing parts of the world. Um, and that's a reflection of the fact that New Zealand is not a developing country. So there's very little discussion of uh, investment and infrastructure development, mm. construction, etc. It's more focused on issues of policy cooperation, bilateral cooperation, cultural exchanges, multilateral cooperation. And in many ways, these things are uh, sort of key to the, New the bilateral relationship with New Zealand anyway. Um, so when the Prime Minister um, touched on uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, she made it very clear um, that New Zealand was still considering this, and we had an 18-month work program to identify those issues, and there's been work done both in government, um, and there's also been some private sector work, uh, a report uh, published by the New Zealand China Council, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and she made it very clear that there would be areas where New Zealand would seek to um, have projects of cooperation with China in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but there, was, there would also be areas where New Zealand was um, a keen observer um, so not to sign up to everything on the Belt and Road Initiative, but to pick and choose in areas where New Zealand can add value um, and where it aligns with New Zealand interests. Right. Jason, could I just ask you, are you able to very quickly summarise maybe one or two of the areas that New Zealand would choose to engage with China on the Belt and Road? So, so what, what is New Zealand attracted to at the moment about the initiative? At its heart, um, and there's a lot of controversy and discussion about what the Belt and Road Initiative actually is, and I think it is a very abstract and somewhat ambiguous concept, mm. um, for, perhaps intentionally, um, to allow some room for evolution and growth. Um, but at its heart, New Zealand is, is keen um, to promote regional development and to promote uh, economic connectivity in the region, because in the end, that's good for us. Uh, so trade facilitation, uh, customs uh, facilitation, um, areas of alignment in terms of multilateral goals, such as uh, working forward on the Regional Cooperation Economic Partnership or uh, having discussion groups to talk about how we deal with e-commerce issues within the right. region, et cetera, et cetera. Those sort of more soft areas of the Belt and Road Initiative rather than uh, we think that the Belt and Road Initiative would be a great vehicle for building a bridge from Sydney to Wellington. Right. Okay. So the message from New Zealand is that you can have a discussion with China um, under the under the banner of the Belt and Road, but it doesn't have to be about infrastructure. That's the New well, Zealand experience. Yes, and, and no doubt there'll be some discussion about infrastructure. Sure. Belt and Road is always a give and take. Um, but that is how New Zealand, if you if you read the document, that's how New Zealand has, has, has uh, engaged with the Belt and Road Initiative. And from the Chinese side, 
I mean, the discussion about infrastructure doesn't really fit with the New Zealand case mm. anyway. Um, and that New Zealand actually provides a really interesting uh, opportunity to uh, frame the discussion of the Belt and Road Initiative in terms of how China engages with advanced economies right. and what role they play in the region. Okay, Jason, well, let's stop talking about the Belt and Road now and start talking about the FTA. Now, you folks over there were the trendsetters, of course, the first high-income country to settle an FTA with China, um, came into force 10 years ago. Now, I understand that New Zealand and China are currently sitting down to look at upgrading that FTA. Um, can you give us an update on that? What's New Zealand hoping to um, gain and how important do you consider having success in that upgrade is for New Zealand? So the, the 2008 Free Trade Agreement, which New Zealand signed with China, was um, or has been uh, incredibly important for New Zealand's uh, economic health. Uh, sort of really sheltered us from much of the global financial crisis. Um, a lot of our trade has increased, and our economic relationship with China has certainly flourished under that. But at the same time, you know, 2008 was 10 years ago, uh, and, and in that time period, um, a few things have changed. So the very nature of the type of trade and economic relations that we have with China has shifted. Um, so what we were talking about in 2006 and 2007 um, is, is now quite different to what we would be talking about now. And so there's a, a question of trying to realign some of the free trade agreement to more adequately reflect the type of economic relationship which we have with China. Um, and then secondly, um, and this is, I think, uh, clearly demonstrated uh, when, when Australia uh, concluded its very successful free trade agreement with China, is that the China's willingness to talk about certain types of issues and, and to push forward certain types of um, areas, such as services and investment, etc., has also shifted. Um, and so New Zealand um, would be as very valuable to be able to have the opportunity to sit down with China talk about some new industries and some new areas such as e-commerce for example mm. which is a big part of how we uh, do business with China now but there's very little infrastructure or institutions and rules and regulations understandings about for example how a Chinese tourist uh, comes to New Zealand and uses waiting uh, payment system or mm. Alipay or, or how we tax or how we deal with um, cross-border transa transactions or even how we use um, uh, biosanitary, or how we use, um, uh, how we monitor the types of uh, bio biosecurity issues which come about from daigo trading or traders right. of small traders yep. as opposed to big companies and these types of things. So there's lots of areas where uh, we think it would be valuable to 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 sit down with China and to readdress the, the actual reality of the rela economic relationship today. And then and then there's also these these questions of of more direct questions in terms of tariffs. So um, when Australia signed its agreement, it was quite clear that they that Australia got a very good deal, uh, in particular in terms of dairy uh, tariffs. Whereas New Zealand was um, had a you know very successful deal, but also had uh, special safeguard measures put in place, which meant that when trade hit a certain volume, uh, the special safeguard measures would would click in, um, and that the tariff would be uh, put back onto those products. Mm. Of course, the actual amount of um, dairy product which New Zealand trades into China means that those tariffs in some areas actually click on within a couple of weeks and, into the year. And so there's this question of, you know, maybe readdressing some of those. Um, although the, that's a, a tricky tricky area because, of course, those, those special safeguard measures will come off 
in a couple of years anyway, sort of early 2022, 20, 24. Um, and then the final thing, and this is uh, what I think many countries struggle with in terms of trade agreements, is, is discussing how both countries can deal with um, what uh, exporters often talk about as you know, non-tariff barriers mm. to trade and what type of mechanisms we have in place for, for dealing with those types of non-tariff barriers to trade. The FTA, you said, has broadly been you know, a success for New Zealand and so therefore we're looking to upgrade it. Can we move a bit on to the politics now? And this is a, a more, you know, this is more challenging ground for both Australia and New Zealand. Now, look, both countries over the last year have been engulfed in a debate on China's political influence in our countries. Um, last year, University of Canterbury academic Anne-Marie Brady released a report entitled Magic Weapons, China's political influence activities under Xi Jinping, um, which detailed evidence of possible influence operations in New Zealand. Jason, what's your assessment on of the evidence on the table in the case of Chinese influence in New Zealand, and how has the New Zealand government responded to these um, to these allegations? So, so uh, you're right. It's a, it's a very sensitive area. It's a very tricky area to talk about. Um, and in terms of um, the discussion, um, and we've been watching very, very closely and very carefully the discussion as it's played out in Australia, um, but we'll also have our own public discussion. Um, it's been a lot more muted, uh, I would argue. And one of the things which, which is becoming more and more clear is that, that there, there needs to be a lot more scrutiny put on how we talk about these issues. Um, so there's you know, the, the clear distinction between um, influence as opposed to interference. Um, and so there there is clearly a, a, a strong Chinese influence in New Zealand, um, as there is strong China, uh, influence um, from a lot of other countries. Um, then when we move to sort of having a discussion about interference, um, which is something more serious, then the I would argue that the that we, we cut down the number of cases that we can actually look at and the evidence suggesting or clearly identifying interference activities from China is far more blurry and in some cases not available to the public. Um, so, so like Australia, I would argue, we've had um, a, a raging debate, a very hot debate. Um, people have uh, very strongly held views, um, but the actual empirical discussion has been quite weak to date. And I would argue that the bar has not yet been met to make a very clear statement of uh, Chinese interference in New Zealand political system. Okay, Jason, can we um, finish off on this question? Um, I'd like to ask you for your thoughts on what Australia and New Zealand can learn from each other. Sitting over in um, New Zealand, are there aspects of the Australian debate um, around Chinese influence and interference and the way the countries engage economically? Are there things that Australia is doing that you think have merit? Um, and flip that around. Uh, are there things that you think Australia might actually do well from um, listening to the approach that um, Wellington is taking with managing the relationship with China? So, so I think the, the clear advantage that Australia has in any type of discussion about China issues is the capacity which it has within its university system, um, within the, the number of academics, the research institutes, um, all over the country to have deep and um, well-informed uh, commentary on these issues. Um, and so that, that is both a uh, positive in terms of being able to discuss the issues, um, but uh, sometimes I, I worry that the, the, the voices in China, uh, in Australia, that know about these issues are not getting the type of media and um, uh, coverage which mm. they need. 
Um, so, so I think that's something that Australia certainly has over and us. If, we, if we're looking at sort of some of the differences, um, I think in, in Australia, the debate about Chinese influence takes on a secure, securitization uh, angle. So the securitization of the debate in Australia is not something which we see played out in New Zealand. So in New Zealand, it's more a question of New Zealand politics and how our political system works and what we're okay with, what we're not okay with, and how we figure out what's what, and how do we deal with um, this new um, player, China. Mm. And so it's, it's less of a security issue. But I, but I also think that the government responses have, have differed as well. Um, and I would imagine that part of that is related to domestic politics within Australia and within New Zealand. New Zealand's had a pretty consistent bipartisan approach to China over a long period of time. Um, and, and that's not just with China, that's with generally with um, foreign affairs. If you, if you run a, an election in New Zealand, very few people would run a campaign based on a foreign affairs issue. Uh, whereas in Australia, I think foreign affairs is, is far more part of the domestic political system. So you wouldn't see uh, a New Zealand politician invoking Mao and you know, ideas of revolution to talk about Australian or New Zealand independence. That, that type of thing just, just doesn't happen, or, or to sing, single out. China as a, as a as a threat or a country, um, we're far more across the board. Our, we have these sets of values, these sets of institutions, these sets of principles, and we apply those institutions and principles to countries across the board. Um, but I think you know if you put these differences aside, which I would suggest are quite minor, yep. um, that New Zealand and Australia really are, are, are facing the same thing. We're both um, very very similar countries with very similar institutions, strong democratic systems, well fought for strongly fought for and very, very important. And we both have a privilege and a duty to try to uphold these types of institutions. At the same time, finding a way of dealing with China, which is a very different type of political system and a different type of political system that is now becoming far more international. And I think that's going to take a lot of knowledge um, and a lot of expertise in order to be able to negotiate in a, uh, with, with China so that we maintain our systems at the same time as being able to understand China and to, to, to create positive but you know, mutually respectful relationships where we don't always agree, um, but we can also have a proactive relationship. So I think in that sense, you know, New Zealand and Australia have, have much, well, particularly New Zealand, has a lot to, to learn from Australia in this area. Jason Young, I think we'll leave it there. Um, greatly appreciate your insights. I'm sure this podcast will be very well listened to in this country, um, and we hope to be joining you again in the not-too-distant future. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Our next episode will feature Jay Yung Lo, a writer and policy advisor based in Melbourne. We'll be discussing the importance of Chinese Australians in shaping Australia's engagement with and understanding of China. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or listen to all our episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There, you'll also find out more about ACRI's research and events. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ACRI underscore UTS, and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.